If you were here with us last week, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things that I said is that it doesn't take you very long as a parent, and usually just if you're around children, you can find this out pretty quickly too, to know that children like to ask questions, especially young children like to ask a lot of questions. And sometimes those questions are simple and easily answered. Sometimes they are not so simple and easily answered, especially when you're maybe not quite as clear on your understanding of what it is that they're actually asking of you. For instance, I found some of these comments from parents about questions that their kids asked of them, and I <clears throat> thought I'd share them with you uh, this morning. One parent said, my toddler asked me if I would give her chicken nuggets a, a checkup, which I thought was kind of strange, and after giving all the nuggets a medical exam, I realized she was actually asking for ketchup. <clears throat> Another parent said this, and um, I hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's not bad. It's just, you know, I don't know where you are. But uh, this one said, my five-year-old asked me what a poop hole does, and after an impromptu lesson on the digestive system, he was able to explain to me that he actually said pupil. <laughs> Next lesson, enunciation. Another parent said, my three-year-old asked me if she could shave the window, and it took me a couple minutes to figure out that she wanted to use the squeegee. Uh, one more, another parent said, my son asked me, where does poo come from? I bet you didn't think you would come to hear two uh, jokes about poo, but um, if you know me, then you shouldn't be all that surprised. But where does poo come from? I was a little uncomfortable, the parent said, but gave him an honest answer and explanation. He looked perplexed and stared at me in stunned silence for a few seconds and asked, and Tigger? <clears throat> May take a minute to get that one. Uh, well, last week we started a series entitled, When God Asks the Questions. And while certainly we all have questions that we would ask of God, as I said last week, and as we know to be the reality, uh, the reality is that we're not the only ones who have questions. God has some questions of his own for us, and his questions uh, leave no room for misunderstanding. And so throughout this series, we're just going to be walking through some of the questions that God asks of human beings in Scripture. And through God's questions, I think we can find some, some really good answers to some of the biggest uh, issues that we are dealing with in our day that can hopefully make the biggest difference uh, in our lives day by day. And the question we're going to be looking at this week is actually a question that God asks on the heels, pun intended, and you'll see why in just a few moments, of him being asked to do something by a man by the name of Jacob. Jacob asks for God's blessing, and God responds to Jacob curiously with a question that goes something like this. What is your name? What's your name? Let's read the story in Genesis chapter 32. <coughs> Excuse me starting in verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, 
he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. In order to understand what's going on here, I think a little context would probably be helpful. I I don't know how much you know about the story of Jacob. Some of you are probably somewhat familiar, if not uh, fully familiar with this. But he and his brother, his twin brother Esau, uh, were born to their father Isaac. Esau came out of the womb first. Uh, He was the firstborn, but Jacob literally came out on his brother's heel. He was actually literally grabbing his brother's heel. And so Jacob henceforth was named literally heel grabber. That is Jacob's, that is the meaning of Jacob's name, heel grabber. But it also carries with it the meaning trickster or deceiver. With his name from the earliest of ages came the image of Jacob being one who would take the feet out from under another in order to take advantage of them. Jacob would very much prove to be a heel grabber and a trickster uh, as his life unfolded. For example, he took advantage of his brother Esau one day when Esau, Esau showed up from a day of hunting and he was exhausted, he was famished. Jacob was the cook in the family and he had been boiling up, cooking up this pot of stew and he talked Esau into exchanging his birthright as the firstborn son for a bowl of stew, at which either must have been a really good bowl of stew or Esau must have been really, really tired and a little bit delirious for him to do that. Uh, But he nevertheless tricked Esau into giving him his birthright. Jacob then used that birthright to deceive his father uh, as he posed before Isaac. Isaac was kind of blind at that point, and so he posed before Isaac as Esau and received what was known as the blessing of the firstborn that carried with it inheritance and power and other privileges. And in that culture, once a father's blessing was passed down to the child, in this case the firstborn, uh, it could not be revoked. It could not be uh, undone. And so Jacob took what was Esau's through some trickery. That eventually, that kind of activity eventually, though, catches up with Jacob. He has to flee his family. He leaves his homeland, attempts to start over in another land. It was then that Jacob wound up getting a dose of his own medicine when he goes and gets conned a time or two by a guy by the name of Laban. Laban would actually go on to be his father-in-law. And so Jacob winds up marrying Laban's two daughters. He gets conned into how, they, how he marries them. And Jacob ends up becoming very wealthy. He does very well in this new land, uh, but he doesn't exactly change his ways. In fact, it only entrenched him all the more in that way of operating. And in the end, he winds up conning Laban right back. Years pass, and God tells Jacob that it is time for him to go back home. Time to him to go back to his land, the land of his father and of his relatives, his homeland. His father-in-law Laban is not too thrilled with this idea of Jacob leaving and taking with him all of these possessions that he has gotten in this land, in Laban's land, as well as his two daughters and all of the servants that he is now going to take with him. And so Laban kind of puts up a fight. 
In fact, Laban puts up such strong imposition that he chases Jacob down in an attempt to have him and force him to come back. And so by the time Jacob arrives at the, at the, the, the threshold of his homeland, he's mentally and emotionally exhausted from the drama of it all. And yet the real drama for Jacob is just beginning. Because in returning home, Jacob knows that he's got to face his brother, who he had done royally wrong years earlier and who he had not seen since. I don't know if any of you have been in a similar situation where you did someone wrong and you haven't seen them for quite some time and the time has come that you have to face them face to face, someone you did royally wrong. If you've ever been there, been in that situation, then maybe you can uh, sympathize with some of the anxiety that Jacob felt. And so Jacob decides to, what he's going to do in response is he's going to send messengers ahead to kind of see if he can gauge how Esau is feeling and what's going on to let Esau know that he's coming. The messengers go to Esau and then they return back to Jacob saying that Esau has decided to come and meet him and that he's bringing with him 400 men. Well, as we all know, when it comes to third-party communications, something can get lost in the translation, and something can be missing as far as the communication goes, and that's the case here as well, and it winds up causing more anxiety for Jacob. When Jacob finds out from the messenger that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, he doesn't know what Esau's intentions are, and it just brings more panic, more anxiety, thinking that his brother is coming with him with all of these men to exercise vengeance on what Jacob had done to him years earlier. And so Jacob, thinking that Esau is just going to wipe out everything he has, Jacob decides to divide up everything he has into two massive groups so that if one group gets wiped out, the other might be able to escape. He then loads down both groups with gifts for Esau so that whichever group gets to Esau first, he would be confronted with massive amounts of gifts for him. Jacob is thinking as Genesis chapter 32 verse 20 says, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And so Jacob takes these two groups, including women and children and servants and flocks and herds, bearing gifts for Esau, and he puts them out in front of him to meet Esau and the 400 men with him. So get the picture. He takes all the women and children and he puts them out in front. Super brave guy at this point, right? He pushes them to the front, albeit with gifts, but still pushes them to the front, hoping that it will soften Esau up and that Esau will receive him when he shows up at the back of the line. And so in essence, you have Jacob doing what Jacob has always done. Jacob is being Jacob. He is living up or down, whichever way you want to look at it. That's why I put a slash in there, to his name. Jacob is literally living up slash down to his name. He's scheming and planning, making sure that he can somehow survive and thrive. And in the middle of the night, he sends everybody off in front of him, across the ford to the river Jabbok, and into the homeland ahead of him. And Jacob's establishing a pretty good distance at this point so that they can get way out in front of him while he lags behind. Again, just superb amounts of bravery here. And for the moment, he's alone. Anxious, nervous, 
an upset father-in-law in his rearview mirror, a brother that he had royally done wrong many, many years ago who he has not seen since, and the last time he saw him was not very happy with him. That's in his front view. From Jacob's vantage point, he's got enemies on both sides. He's truly between a rock and a hard place. And then as if he didn't have enough to worry about, Jacob gets into a wrestling match in the middle of the night. Now, we don't know exactly what the details of all of this are, but we do can, can kind of put some of the pieces together. Hosea chapter 12 verse 4 tells us that this was an angel with whom Jacob was wrestling, although Jacob equates it with the presence of God. He equates this, this man, this angel, with God because he later names the place Peniel because, as he says, he saw God face to face and his life was spared. Wherever you come down on this, the bottom line is that this is a divine being who comes in a man, as a man and wrestles with Jacob. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever wrestled, whether it be competitively or just, you know, with your brother or sister or cousin, you know, not naming any names that might have happened at our house yet, last night. But um, it doesn't take you long to realize why wrestling does not last very long, Right? Three-minute periods, usually in a competitive form of wrestling, because you get worn out pretty quickly, which kind of begs the question, uh, what kind of man is this that is, you know, wrestling and, 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 and able to stand his ground for as long as Jacob does? I mean, it, that's, that's pretty impressive. Jacob wrestles with this man, this angel, throughout the night. Makes you wonder how good of a shape Jacob is uh, in at this point. Now, if you don't know the story, if you actually, if you do know the story, then you know that Jacob is kind of seen as the, the meeker, softer, uh, you know, of, of the two brothers. The Bible says that he hung around the tents, which is probably a nice way of saying he was kind of a mama's boy. Uh, Esau was the manly guy. He was the hunter covered in hair, which obviously we all know is a sign of manliness. You know, the more hair you have on your face and um, is a sign of manliness. That's not true, but uh, we'll, we'll go with that. But so the very different brothers in, in, in how they uh, approach life. And yet you here have, have kind of a different image of Jacob. Jacob's known as kind of the softer one. Uh, and yet here he is wrestling throughout the night. Uh, and add to that, some scholars estimate that Jacob uh, get this, was most likely in his 90s, and yet he's wrestling through the night with this angel. Again, kind of makes you wonder what kind of man Jacob is that could wrestle that long with God or with an angel. Also kind of makes you wonder a little bit about what kind of God this is that would allow Jacob to hang in there for that long as well. So we come to verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, the angel, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And so now Jacob, get this, is hobbled, but he's still not giving in. That, that's Jacob's kind of personality. He, he is, I, I will say this, he does have some perseverance about him. He still will not let this angel go. And so finally the man asked Jacob to let him go. But Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And Jacob makes this request because he's got a firm grip on this man, on this angel, and he will not let him go until he blesses him. And so again, in one sense, there is 
some, some good perseverance here on the, on, on the part of Jacob. Although, can you just picture a 90-year-old man? I, I'm picturing like a little kid hanging on to your leg. This is a 90-year-old man hanging on to this guy's leg, basically. Um, he does show some perseverance. But in another sense, this is how Jacob has always gotten his blessing. When someone has something he wants, he gets leverage on them, and he won't let go until he gets what he wants. And because Jacob is about to face his brother Esau, 400 men, he doesn't know what their intentions are. Jacob knows he needs a blessing. He needs the assurance that this thing is going to work out the way that he wants it to, that God's going to get him out of this jam, and he's not letting go until he gets that blessing, that assurance. And I think most of us can relate. You ever had those times where you are just desperate for a blessing? You're in a bind. You don't know which way is left, which way is right, or either option or any option just seems like the worst option. And you're desperate for God to bless you, to work it out, to get you out of the jam. Jacob needs a blessing, but he doesn't get one immediately. Instead, he gets a question. What's your name? What's your name? Now, on the surface, that might seem like a strange question, but you have to realize a couple of things. First of all, in that culture, the way a blessing was given was by the pronouncement of one's name. And so Jacob tells him his name, Jacob. But remember, this is not just his name. I mean, it is his name, but it's, it's more than his name. It's also the meaning behind his name. Jacob, heel grabber, trickster deceiver. When Jacob confesses his name, he's also confessing something about himself. In telling this man his name, he was uttering before God his story, that he had lived up to his name or down to his name, whichever way you want to think about it. You know, last week we talked about how whenever God asks a question, it's not, it's not for the purpose of getting information for his sake, right? God already knows the answers to the questions that he's asking of us, but rather it is for restoration for our sake. But also that our restoration involves our participation. And so Jacob answers God's question and he calls himself what he is. And then God gives him so much more than Jacob was bargaining for. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob gives him his name, and then God gives him a new name. And in one sense, changing Jacob's name shows the audaciousness of God. It really does. I mean, only parents have the, the right to name a child, and usually that's exercised at birth, right, when the child has no say in it, despite our kids' apparently all of them wanting to change their names for some reason, um, which I guess you can do, but you don't, get, you don't have any say when you are named, right? And even then, you are the one who gets to, to decide your name, not someone else. And so it's a complete reflection of parental authority. I mean, who has the authority to rename a man in his 90s? I'll tell you who. God. God does. And when he does, he expresses his dominion and ownership over Jacob. And yet, while in one sense it does show the audaciousness of God, it also shows the graciousness of God. The name change was an expression of God's intention of transforming Jacob's identity 
and character. Jacob was going to be known for something different than what he had been known for up to that point. When God renamed him, it wasn't descriptive of what, he had, what had happened up to that point. It was prophetic in terms of what was going to happen in the future in Jacob's life. That Jacob was, in fact, in that instance, struggling with God, but would go on also to struggle with God and man in the future and overcome. I love what Romans chapter 4, verse 17 says, that he is the God who gives life to the dead, and I love this part, and calls things that are not as though they were. That's the power that our God has. Things that were not, he can call into being. He can rename them. That God, speaking from an eternal perspective, renames Jacob in light of his future and not in light of his past. And as a testimony that Jacob would overcome, God gives him a new name, Israel. And it's not all that unlike what God does with us when he calls those who are in Christ things like blameless, and holy in places like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God sees us in Christ more in light of our future than in light of our past. He calls things that are not yet as though they were. Now, to be honest, I, I don't know what you think of when you think of Jacob, but um, this is not the first story that comes to mind, although I do think about it. And even when I think about it, I don't always think about it in good terms as far as Jacob. When I think of Jacob, I think of him as heel grabber, deceiver, trickster. But that's not how God sees him. And isn't that what ultimately matters? How God sees us and what God decrees over us. Jacob says in return, please tell me your name. Note that at least he does say please this time. So he does have some level of manners this time as compared to his request earlier when he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Very different, Jacob. He's different now because he understands that he doesn't have the leverage. He understands that it's by God's grace and not his leverage that he's going to overcome. And God doesn't intend to give him any more leverage. Jacob says, please tell me your name. But God doesn't give Jacob the answer his want, the man, that he wants. The man replied, why do you ask me my name? And then he doesn't even let him answer. But he just goes on, as the writer says, to bless him there. Jacob has no leverage over God. He's not going to get a name out of him in that moment. You ever been talking to your child and, and they're trying to get the leverage back and you don't even answer their question, right? That's what God does here with Jacob. I want you to know who's in control. Jacob, I, I want you to know who is in control. And Jacob begins to realize who is firmly in charge, that it is not him, but it is God. But the good news is that the one who is in charge blesses him. Now, we don't know exactly what that blessing was, what, what exactly was said when he blessed him. Maybe that's because the blessing pales in comparison to the importance of of the name change. So Jacob calls the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the next verse says, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. And I just think this is so apropos. He was limping because of his hip. Limping because of his hip. My guess is he had that limp for the rest of his life. Because the reality is you can't wrestle with God and emerge unscathed and unchanged. Ain't going to happen. 
Perhaps the limp would be a reminder to Jacob that he needed to depend on God instead of depending on doing the things the way that he'd always done them with that heel grabber, trickster mentality. A good limp reminds us to rely on God. You know, we, we, be, we belie all the time all the things that, that we have to deal with, but sometimes those limps remind us of our dependence on something bigger than us. And in the end, that changes the way that we act as we're trusting in him. Maybe that's why when you read the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 33, we find Jacob changing his plans. Instead of sending the women and children on ahead with all of these gifts in front of him to soften Esau up, Jacob takes the lead in facing Esau. Now he's still bringing gifts because that was the proper thing to do in that culture. But it's Jacob who will meet Esau and the 400 men first because he's beginning to trust in God instead of trusting in himself. In one sense, he may be limping, but in another sense, he's walking more upright than he ever has in his life. He's not unscathed, but he's not unchanged either. So what can you and I take away from God's question to Jacob? What's your name? Well, I think there's probably several things, but I just want to give you one more thing this morning that I think stands above everything else, and it's this. God wants to transform our character and not simply bless our circumstances. We most times wouldn't mind having one without having to deal with the other. And the one is the one on the bottom. We just much prefer God bless our circumstances, redeem our circumstances, take us out of our circumstances, change our circumstances, than have to go through the wrestling match that is transforming our character. We've all been in Jacob's shoes, desperate for a blessing. But God desires to give us so much more than that. And sometimes the only way we cling to him long enough for a blessing, for us to be transformed, is when he withholds the blessing that we so desperately seek. Jacob asks for a blessing, and what does God do? He does not immediately bless him. God answers our prayers, but he does not immediately bless our circumstances, change our circumstances, redeem our circumstances. Instead, God poses a question to Jacob. And the dialogue is just another version of the wrestling match. God delays the blessing so that he can impart the transformation because in the end, God is out to transform our character, not simply bless our circumstances. Now, I certainly believe that God has the power to change any and every situation that we deal with, any conflict that we may face. But ultimately, I think God desires to change us in the midst of our conflicts. Now, in Jacob's case, the conflict that he's facing is directly tied to what he did wrong to his brother. And Jacob just wants to get through it, which he does in the end. But again, God isn't simply concerned with Jacob surviving his circumstances, nor is he with us, but rather that Jacob is delivered from his character. And how many times have we experienced it in our own lives or seen it in the lives of others when we play, pray and we plan and we work for a new set of circumstances in life only to wind up repeating the past over and over and over again. God changed this and we keep walking down the same paths. We keep making the same choices. We keep having the same mindsets. We keep doing the same things 
all the while expecting God to change our circumstances. We try to change this. We try to change that. We try to change so many things in our lives except ourselves. Except what's here and here. But our future has more to do with God changing our character within us than with God changing the things around us. One of the things that is popular, has been popular for several years now in, in religious circles, is the idea of naming it and claiming it. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. Just to be clear, I don't believe in, in that teaching. In other words, the idea is that envision your future and what you want it to be, then you just name it in prayer and claim it and it'll be yours. That it's just that simple. And while I don't want to completely disregard it, it's, it's used in, in some negative ways. But let me tell you this. I will say this. Our future has less to do with naming and claiming things and far more to do with God renaming and reclaiming us. So what's your name? What's your story? What is it that has marked your life up to this point that needs to change? What is it that you long for God to do when it comes to writing a different ending than the one that you've been headed for? And God can change our circumstances. But more than anything, he desires to change us. So what is it that you want a new ending for? Name that. Claim that, and I think you'll find a God who's in the business of renaming and reclaiming 